Turn to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi. Malachi 4. It's the last book in the Old Testament if you need help. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So before we get into Malachi, let's a uh, little couple sentences here for an introductory. Last week we finished the unfolding of the what judgments did we look at? They were three woes. Something happens to initiate them. There we go. Thank you. Trumpet judgments. Trumpet judgments. You can see that that's stuck very well. And the three final woes. This week, we will see two men that God sent, for, uh, sent to the earth to witness and prophesy of the events to come. This is a parenthesis in the second trip through the tribulation. A parenthesis in the second trip. Just like in the, the, uh, the first trip through when we looked at all the seals being opened, we had another parenthesis there where we learned about the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. Now as we get this second view through the tribulation, there's another parenthesis of something that's unfolding, and that's where we learn about God's two witnesses that He has on the earth. So we have God's two witnesses. So who are these two witnesses on your sheet? They are Moses and Elijah. They're Moses and Elijah. And so you guys know which one was prophesied by name to return in the book of Malachi? Elijah. 50-50 shot. Elijah was prophesied by name to return, to return. And this is Malachi. This is the last book written in the Old Testament. And then there was about 400 years of silence until Christ came. But by the time Malachi was written, Elijah had been dead and gone for a long, long time. Because this is after they came out of captivity and they're, they're back rebuilding things and everything. That This would be the time of Malachi. It would fit into the book of Nehemiah. So, um, so Elijah's been dead for, well, I guess he technically wasn't dead, was he? But he's been gone for a long time at this point. So Elijah was prophesied by name. I just wanted you guys to see this. Malachi chapter 4. We're just going to read the whole thing. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. All the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So you notice too, just right off a cursory glance, we are talking about right before the Lord returns, right before the judgment comes. Verse 2, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of whom? Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you, who? Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse, which we know is coming 
during this time. But that will be Elijah's ministry. And I want you to notice there, who else shows up in that context? Moses. It doesn't say that Moses is coming back in this context, but it does say that Elijah for sure, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that. And he's, like I say, he's been gone for a while at this point. And God said, I'm going to send him back to earth to do this. He's going to have a ministry when he comes back. And right before that, he says, remember the law of Moses. Moses is mentioned here too. Next, go ahead and turn over to Matthew 17. Matthew chapter 17. Verses 10 and 11. Matthew 17, 10 and 11. Now this is right on the heels of the Mount of Transfiguration, which I believe most of you are familiar with. Jesus takes his, uh, his inner three, uh, Peter, James, and John, up on a high mountain, and he shows his true nature of who he is, reveals his glory, this Mount of Transfiguration. And who shows up when that happens? And? Moses. Moses and Elijah show up. So now after that, this is the context that sets. We get down to verse 10. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must, come, must first come? Why, is this, why are the scribes saying this? Why are the men that know the Bible saying that Elijah has to come? Verse 11, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. He said, they're saying it because he's going to. The reason they're saying Elijah's coming back is because he is going to. Next, God gave, this is under the, the uh, who are these witnesses? God gave two witnesses of the coming Messiah. Go ahead and look in Matthew 5. Matthew 5. What were the two witnesses of the Old Testament? Any thoughts? The two witnesses... Moses and Elijah. Yes, but what did they embody? Oh, uh, the law. The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. Yes, good job, Zach. And whoever said prophets. Matthew 5, 17. I lost my spot. He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. These were the two things that were speaking of the coming Messiah. And Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy those things. I came to fulfill those things. We always, not always, but we can often think about it in terms of he came to fulfill the law. At least I hear that all the time, right? He came to fulfill the law, fulfill the law. Well, I think we often forget not just the law, but the law and the prophets to fulfill all the things that the prophets said also. So those were the two witnesses that spoke of Jesus. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 11. Just going to look at a couple of these because they're all in Matthew. Matthew 11, verse 13. It says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 40. And the, the context of this one would be, you know, which is the great law and the commandment? You know them. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus said it over and over and over again. You'd find it again in Luke 24. You'd find it in John 1.45. And you would find Paul saying it in Romans chapter 3. It's the law 
and the prophets. These were the witnesses of Jesus Christ. There were two Old Testament witnesses. And the two men, you have uh, the next points on your paper, Moses is equated to the law. Moses is equated to the law because he received, delivered, enforced, and established the law. He was the law giver, as it were, because God gave it to him to then give to the nation of Israel. So Moses, he embodies the law, and then you have Elijah, he embodies the prophets. And not only that, he is considered the greatest prophet of Israel, the greatest prophet that they had by the Jews. Jesus, on the other hand, do you guys know who he said was the greatest prophet, even greater than Elijah? JTB. John the Baptist. Yep, John the Baptist. Very good. Did you know that was the John? Were you just guessing a John because there's a lot of Johns? No, I, just, I was confused by JTB. John the Baptist. We live in a culture that likes to acronym everything, so I figured I'd just send it. No? What are you talking about? You guys got the, the texting lingo that I only understand like seven of them. So, huh? Nobody does that anymore? Okay, well, I can't keep up. Okay, we'll just stick with John the Baptist. I'm sorry I said anything. So, <laughs> Jesus said that John the Baptist was a greater prophet, but the nation of Israel considers Elijah to be the greatest prophet that they ever had. So Moses and Elijah, these are the two, the two men that embody the law and the prophets. They were the witnesses of the coming Messiah. Stands to reason that in the last days... And the end times, when God's going to send two witnesses down to planet Earth, it's going to be those same two men that witness the law and the prophets to the nation of Israel. Next, you have the Mount of Transfiguration. We're not going to turn back over there, but we know Moses and Elijah show up. Again, it's Moses and Elijah. And then just another interesting little fact as to why we would believe that, that these men are the two that will show up. They both were resisted by Old Testament types of the Antichrist, and false prophets. So Moses, you had, he was resisted by Pharaoh, and then his two knuckleheads were Janus and Jambres, right, that, um, that turned, uh, you know, they put their staffs down and they turned into snakes. They could turn the water into blood or turn it back. They could do all these things too. They were false prophets. Pharaoh was a type of the Antichrist. The same thing that the two witnesses that come back during Revelation are going to face, an Antichrist and a false prophet. Elijah also faced an Old Testament type of Antichrist and false prophet in Ahab. And you know who his wife was? Jezebel. Jezebel. That's who he was resisted by. Ahab and Jezebel. So these things begin building a case. You know, I didn't end up looking it up, but I believe it's Psalm 90. I think it's Psalm 90 that Moses wrote. I don't know why I'm guessing. I could just turn there in my Bible, couldn't I? Psalm 90. I believe. You don't need to turn there. But, you know, they have headings before a lot of the Psalms. And this one, before it says, A prayer of Moses, the man of God. I always found that interesting. Like Moses definitely really stood out. And so he's the man of God. Psalm 90, that's that heading right before you get into verse 1. So we would believe that Moses is the other one for sure. Elijah is one of them. He was called by name. Now let's go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11.
All right, we're going to primarily be looking at verses 3 through 12 in Revelation chapter 11. We'll go ahead and read them and then dive back in. Verse 3, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in, he must in this manner be killed. These have the power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And that's the, the end of their, their ministry there, as it were. And then from last week, we picked up right here, because basically you have, the, you have an earthquake. And, uh, oh, you know what? I should have went to verse 13. I don't know why I wrote 12. Verse 13. In the same hour, I'm sorry, was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and the earth. Uh, in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to God, to the glory to the God of heaven. And then that says the second woe is passed. Behold, the third cometh quickly, and then boom, Jesus Christ returns. So, and that's where we ended last week. So, Revelation chapter eleven: Moses and Elijah they witness and they prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days, and that is forty-two months, thirty days per month. And that's how long their ministry will be for three and a half years or 42 months. This is the same time on your sheet. So we understand this is definite. Well, we'll get there. This is the same time Israel is in the wilderness. If you remember back when we did the Antichrist and we spent a couple weeks on that, we found out that Israel will be persecuted. And that lined up with, I believe, seal five when there's martyrdom and persecution and Israel will be driven into the wilderness. And you remember where they're going to go, the, what the name of the place is? Petra. Petra. And it's in Edom. And it's basically, you know, it's, it's a city carved out of a mountain. And that's where they're going to flee. And it says that they will be there. Go ahead and look in Revelation 12, since we're right here. Revelation 12, 6, how long they'll be there. It says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed, that they should feed her there a thousand 203 score days, the exact same amount of time, because once that persecution's coming, we're in the second half of the tribulation or the great tribulation period. So this is the same time that these witnesses are going to begin prophesying. You know what I find interesting too? God doesn't really say how they're going to appear. Like, I don't know. Are they just going to poof into existence? 
Like Elijah was taken to heaven bodily. How's he going to get here? Is he just going to materialize? Is he going to, I don't know. It's kind of weird to think about because God's not specific on the matter. But nevertheless, I don't want to get down that rabbit trail. So this is the same time that Israel is in the wilderness. This is also the same time that the beast, the beast is blaspheming God and persecuting Israel. Go ahead and look in Revelation 13, verse 5. Speaking of the beast, it says, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. It's that same three and a half year period. This is after he's suffered a head wound, he's resurrected, brought back to life, and now the great tribulation begins. It's this same time. And if you look in Revelation 12, verse 14... It says, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent, because the serpent is now coming after Israel. And if you remember, we looked at the book of Daniel, where it uses that same phraseology of a time, times, and half a time. So that would mean three and a half years. You have time a year, times two more years, half time Three and a half years. So it's this same time that the beast is blaspheming, blaspheming God and persecuting Israel. And this clearly takes place during the Great Tribulation. Look back in Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. This is after uh, John sees that first woe unfold. And then he's, he's given a little book and he eats it. And he said it was sweet to the taste, but man, then it was bitter in his belly because he needed to continue to prophesy. He had to go back out and he had to keep prophesying. And that's what made him bitter because he knew what was coming. I often wonder, because it says it was a little book, right? He says that the angel came down with a foot in the sea and a foot on the land. He had a little book open in his hand and, and John took it. John ate it. But it's, it's, it can't be the Bible. The Bible's not a little book. And it's, it didn't say books. My speculation, if you guys remember when we went, were looking into Daniel, and Daniel was told, seal this up. This is for the time of the end. Don't, don't put this in the book. I wonder if it's those things that John had. Because that mighty angel has it. This book came from heaven. I gotta wonder if it's the things that Daniel was told, seal it up. Don't write about this. If those were the things, because it was a little book that he was given that was now open before that book was sealed. I don't know. Again, speculation, but I find it very interesting. So, this takes place during the Great Tribulation. That all takes place. John's told, you need to go now measure the temple because the temple will be rebuilt at this time. Verse 1 in chapter 11. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. The temple. Measure the temple. Verse 2. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out. That was the Gentile court. And measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And then, boom, we have these, these witnesses show up. So we know this has to be the Great Tribulation because what's taking place during the first three and a half years in Israel? What's going on? What, what has, what has uh, 
I guess I'll just tell you. There was a peace treaty, right? A false peace treaty that we know is only going to last three and a half years. And he says here that that outer court was given to the Gentiles and the holy city shall be tread underfoot for 40 and two months. Well, they're not going to tread it underfoot if there's a peace treaty going on for the first three and a half years. This has to be the second three and a half years. This has to be the great tribulation when their ministry unfolds. And I may feel like I'm kind of beating this, but I really want you guys to understand how much the book of Revelation kind of jumps around so you can begin placing these things. As you're reading through your Bible, it'll be less confusing if you understand, okay, 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 this isn't chronological. This goes here, this goes over here, this goes over here, because there's a lot of pieces to this. So that's why I just want to make sure you guys are getting it. Do you guys understand? Is this making sense how these things fit together? Okay, cool. So... Your next point, at uh, closer to the end of verse 3, after it says that they'll prophesy 1,203 score days clothed in sackcloth. So they are clothed in sackcloth. And that's interesting to me too. Because when you study out sackcloth in the Bible, people wearing sackcloth, it's worn for a time of mourning, repentance, and lamenting. We're not going to turn to these references. you got them on the paper, but... It's for a time of mourning, repentance, and lamenting, and that's what they're going to be clothed in. So, you know, it's easy to read through this and think these strong men of God with fire shooting out of their mouths to kill men that try and hurt them, and the plagues that they can call down, and they can shut heaven that it doesn't rain, that they have this just anger. But yet, they're clothed in the very thing, showing that they're actually mourning because they know what's coming, and they're lamenting because they know the people need to repent. That's why they're clothed in sackcloth. One of those things that I never really thought about it before until going through this, and I thought, man, you know, you would almost think they'd have that attitude of, you know what, you had your chance. God is done with you. But based on what they're wearing, that's not their heart. That's not their attitude. Their attitude is that they're mourning and lamenting over what's going on because they know ultimately where these people are headed and they know their end. So that's what they're wearing. Next, in verse 4, they are, they are the two. Notice it says the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. So as olive trees, they are anointed ones. They are anointed ones. Go ahead, hold your place in Revelation chapter 11. Turn back to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah 4, just a couple of books before Malachi. Or one, Zechariah, Malachi. One book for Malachi. Zechariah chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? What are these two olive trees in this vision that I'm seeing? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Same thing. We read in Revelation, they stand by the God of the whole earth. Here it says, the, the Lord of the whole earth. There, they were olive trees. 
Here, they're anointed ones. These two have been prepared for a long time, for this time, for this time to come. So as olive trees, they are the anointed ones. Now go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Because they're olive trees. And God uses this, this um, metaphor for Israel, the olive tree, that they are the olive tree. And in the Old Testament, when somebody was anointed, it was a picture of the Holy Spirit. How were they anointed? With oil, with olive oil on their head. It was that picture, that anointing of the Holy Spirit. So as olive trees, olive trees, these are the anointed ones. Now Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. It says, For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. Basically, he's talking, about, he's talking about Jesus Christ here. The first fruit is holy, the lump is holy, the branches are holy because they're in the lump. Verse 17, And if some of the branches be broken off, do you know who he's talking about? In this, Jesus Christ is that good tree. Some of the branches are broken off. You know who that is? It's Israel. It's Israel. They were God's chosen people. That's who He came for. I came for, the, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Those natural branches, those branches that are broken off. That's the nation of Israel. That's what He's talking. He's going to build His case through here. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, Gentile, church, be a wild olive tree. Right? We weren't part of that original lump. We weren't part of that original root system. We were Gentiles. We are outside of those promises. We are aliens to those things. Thou, Gentile church, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakers of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Boast not against the branches. Boast not against Israel being broken out of the tree. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. Because they did not believe Christ when He came. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest He also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in Israel, grafted back into that tree that was theirs to begin with. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, right? If you've got a tree that's flourishing and thriving, do you guys know how grafting works, right? If you've got a tree that's dying, you find a good, thriving, flourishing tree and you take branches from it and you graft it into the bad tree to bring life into the bad tree. You don't take bad branches and graft them into a healthy tree. You're going to hurt the tree. But he's saying that's what God did through Jesus Christ. We were bad branches. We were a dead tree. 
And he took us and he cut us off that tree and he grafted us into the good one that the branches could thrive. It was contrary to nature, as Paul put it here. The olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, Israel, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That is the rapture of the church. We're seeing these olive trees again. The church is gone. The fullness of the Gentiles will be come in. The rapture has taken place. These olive trees are going to show back up. So God can take his natural branches and put them back in this tree. Verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. These are the anointed ones. They're showing up because the fullness of the Gentile has come in. It's the same analogy that Paul was using. These are those olive trees. They come to represent all the law and all the prophets so that Israel, the good branches, can be grafted back into the good tree through faith, through their testimony, through their witnesses. So as olive trees, these are the anointed ones. You guys are anointed too. These are the things that we're talking about. We're anointed. We've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Also, they're referred to as candlesticks. So as candlesticks, just like us, they shine the light of the gospel. Turn to Luke 11. Luke chapter 11. Verse 33. Luke eleven thirty-three. No man, when he hath lighted a candle putteth it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. We need to be that candlestick, right? It's one thing to have the candle, but the reason you put it on the stick is so that the light will go farther, right? We don't want to put it in a secret place. We don't want to take the light just like these guys. They're the anointed ones, and they're light. They have light to give. It's not their light. It's Christ's light. But they show up to give it to the world. That's why they're candlesticks. It doesn't say they're candles. Candlesticks. They're getting that light even higher, that it can go further. That's what we got to do. We're anointed, and we're the light now. We'll look at it if we have time when we get to the end here. But that's what we're called to be. Witnesses that go out into the world with an anointing and the light so that the world can see. Next, turn back to Revelation 11. <coughs> see that they have the power of fire, drought, miracles, and plagues. Verses 5 and 6. And if any man will hurt them, Fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Isn't that kind of wild to think about? Like if anybody's going to try and like, you know what? I think we can sneak up on them. I think we can get them. Can you imagine people coming up with a plan? Because we found out a little later that these two torment the people of earth because they do not want to hear the message. 
So can you imagine thinking, okay, we can sneak attack him? Or just being that first guy, right, that thinks, I'm sick of hearing this message, and I'm going to do something about it, and he goes to hurt them? They must be killed in this way. They're going to go up to hurt him, and that first guy, or woman, who knows, they're going to be a human torch, dude. Fire will proceed out of their mouth. Can you imagine seeing that scene unfold? The first one that thinks, I've just had enough of this, and I'm going to do something. And then, boom, they're set ablaze from a heavenly fire out of their mouth. I try and picture these things. It's pretty wild. Verse 6. These have the power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all the plagues as often as they will. So again, just building this case that this is Moses and Elijah. They have fire. They have command over fire. Well, Elijah also had heavenly fire power. And I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the story. Ahab and Jezebel right? They're trying to call on Baal. They're calling on their false god. They're cutting themselves. Elijah's making fun of them. And then Elijah prays, and then boom, God rains fire down from heaven. You guys are familiar with that one. One that I was less familiar with. I always associate, okay, yeah, Elijah called fire down from heaven. Did you guys know that he did it a second time? Yeah, I didn't realize it either, really. In 2 Kings, we're not going to turn there, but in 2 Kings chapter 1, there's, a, there's some Gentile king that wants Elijah to come down. Or no, I'm sorry, he was the king of Israel, but he was a bad king. And he's, he basically he gets hurt, and he's like, hey, can you go get Elijah to come down here because I want to find out if this is going to kill me or if I'm going to get better. And Elijah's like, don't bother, you're going to die. And he still sends men anyway, and the first guy, uh, a captain over 50 with his 50 comes up, and he's like, hey, you, let's go. The king needs you. The king wants you. And Elijah calls fire down and out those 51. So then another captain of 50 and 50 more men show up. Hey, the king needs to see you. Let's go. Boom. He calls fire down from heaven. He's wiped out 102 people now. Finally, the third captain of over 50 and his 50, they show up and that guy about hits his face and says, please save my life. The king would really like it if you'd come down. <laughs> Presents a little differently, but that's a second instance of Elijah calling down that, that fire. And I didn't really realize it. So we know this has got to be tied to Elijah. He has a, a history of calling fire down and having power over fire because of God. Also, Elijah had the power to stop the rain. Stop the rain. We're not going to turn there. In 1 Kings 17, we find that he also prayed for a drought and it didn't rain. And in James 5.17, it says, Elias was subject, or Elijah was subject to like passions as we are and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of, you know how long? You guessed it, three and a half years. Three years and six months. Just like he's going to do again. Because it says it will not rain during the time of their prophecy. So you see, these two things are tied to Elijah. Next, it says that they have power to turn waters into blood, or turn water into blood and smite the earth with plagues. Well, Moses had the power to turn water into blood. He did it in Exodus chapter 7, and he also had the power of plagues as God gave it to him, Exodus 7 through 12. These two men are clearly Moses and Elijah. Next, it's also interesting that it says that when they shall have finished their testimony. You guys notice that? Verse 7, just the first part. And when they shall have finished their testimony... But then, 
Where to go? I've lost it. But this is speaking in a future tense when they shall have done this. And then when we get a little further down, it turns into past tense like it already happened. Because John is seeing these things in real time, as it were. He was transported forward in history to see them. But it says they shall have finished, which makes it interesting. It makes it different. So what men would have had a testimony in the Old Testament that maybe seemed unfinished? Well, none other than Moses and Elijah. So this clearly refers to their testimony during the tribulation, for sure. But also, I believe this also refers to their unusual, unusual is your blank, their unusual earthly endings. Go ahead and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 34. Deuteronomy 34. I believe it's these two men because they weren't done. You guys know Moses. You know, when Moses set out, he was going to be able to see the promised land. He was going to be able to go, but he, he ruined God's picture of Jesus Christ. And God said, you can't go now. You can't go in. And this is how Moses' life ends on earth. Deuteronomy 34, 5 and 6. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in a valley. Who buried him in a valley? Yeah, God. In the land of Moab over against Beth Peor, but no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. So it's weird. Why? Why did God bury Moses that meant no man had any idea where he was buried? Now then if we fast forward to the book of Jude, which we're not going to turn there, in verse 9, Jude, dealing with tribulation context, dealing with the time right before leading up to, it talks about how Michael and the devil were disputing about what? The body of Moses. Why would the devil want Moses' body? Maybe because he knows that's going to be one of those witnesses coming back, so he was trying to fight for that body. And maybe that's why God buried him. And God hid him. I think it's partially so that people wouldn't worship his grave because they were kind of prone to idolatry if you ever read through your Old Testament. But, but also, because God still had a special purpose and plan for Moses' body a couple few thousand years later. That's what I believe. So it has an unusual earthly ending. So it's like he still has a testimony to finish. Same thing with Elijah. You know this. He... He didn't die. God took him. God took him up in a whirlwind and he was just gone. That's in 2 Kings chapter 2. We're not going to turn there. So it's interesting that they, it's like they still have a testimony to finish because their endings were so unusual. Go ahead and turn back to Revelation 11. When they shall have finished their testimony. What happens after they finish that testimony? The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. They get to a point where their invincibility ends. Also of interesting note, do you see where this beast comes from? If you were here last week, what's the bottomless pit? The abyss. The abyss. It's not hell. It's the abyss. It's a different place. Which makes me wonder, is the beast 
that angel? Is that beast, Apollyon? Is he the one that has the power over the horses and those things? I don't know, because he comes from the same place, that bottomless pit, the abyss. Maybe. But here, their invincibility, it's over. And now the beast, which is who? Of the satanic trinity. He's not the devil. He's not the false prophet. He's the Antichrist. Okay, the beast is the Antichrist. He will now have power. After God says the testimony's over, he takes his protective hand off. That fire's not going to proceed out of their mouth anymore. Now the beast, the Antichrist, will have power to finally take them out. And we find out in the next verse that they are located in Jerusalem. Verse 8. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, uh, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So those are some pretty key indicators. We know that Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, but it's interesting too. We don't have the time, but I gave you some verses. Jeremiah 23, 14, and then Ezekiel 23, 2 through 4, 8, 19. Jerusalem in the Old Testament was called Sodom and Egypt, respectively, in these two prophet books. So this is clearly where he's referring to. So their testimony is taking place in Jerusalem. God tells us exactly where they're going to be located in Jerusalem. Next, we find that they just leave their dead bodies in the streets for three and a half days. Three and a half years, they're like, okay, we'll leave them there for three and a half days then. Verse 9, And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. That is just weird to me, man. That is so weird to me. Can you imagine hating somebody so much that when they're dead, if they die in the street, you just want to leave it there? No? Okay. I'm like, you guys are kind of creeping me out. Everyone's like, what's the big deal? No biggie. Just dead bodies in the streets. Okay, it's weird to me. Hopefully it's weird to you. So their dead bodies are just left in the streets for three and a half days. Verse 10, this is the one that gets me even more, that the people of earth, they create a holiday over it. They create a holiday over their death. Read verse 10. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets, prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. That sounds like a holiday, doesn't it? Making merry and sending gifts. What gift, what store do you go to? What greeting card is the prophets are dead? Where do you even get such a thing? What gift do you give? What's that? Hallmark? Of course. It, yeah. Yeah. Everything, the whole world is crumbling down, but Hallmark still stands. Yeah. Maybe. I just can't get it. I can't begin to think, what gift do you send to someone for this? I don't get it. I don't get it. But that's what's going to take place. This just speaks to me of the depravity of people. And how much worse will it be at this time than even it is right now? They're going to be happy to the point where they've, they've basically created a holiday. But that's okay because then God resurrects them. They're resurrected in verse 11. And after three days and in half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them, which saw I would say so. Right? You're in the middle of having a party. You're sending gifts to your friends over these two guys that are dead. Like, 
you got to be experiencing some serious happiness and joy over dead people to be sending gifts to each other and making merry. And then they pop back up alive. I imagine there would be great fear that would fall upon you. Great fear. But God, uh, God brings them up and then he really takes them up. The next point is they are then raptured. They are raptured. Verse 12, notice it says, Come up hither. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And as they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. You know who the other person was that heard come up hither? Church. Yeah, it's us. John heard it in the beginning of chapter 4. right? Revelation 4, verse 1. He heard a voice talking with him as a trumpet saying, Come up hither. They're definitely raptured up into heaven. They hear the same voice saying the same thing. Come up hither. So they're raptured. And then, verse 13, there is a great earthquake. In the same hour was there a great earthquake. And the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. So there's a great earthquake. One-tenth of the city just crumbles down. Crumbles down. 7,000 people die in this great earthquake, but the rest give glory. Glory is your blank. The rest give glory to God. Howbeit, it will be briefly. It will be briefly because they're not truly repentant. Go ahead and look in verse, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Because we know right after this, that's the second woe is past, and the third cometh quickly. So that's the return of Jesus Christ. It's coming quickly. Well, if we look back at some other accounts of Jesus' return, Revelation 6, 15 and 16, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his, his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? They weren't truly repentant because they said, we'd rather be dead than face him. So they may have given glory to God, but they weren't truly repentant. This was a very brief glory to God. Go ahead and look in Revelation 11, verse 18. This is... The end of that third woe, this is Christ's return. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. You see, they were angry when he returned. So they gave glory to God briefly, but they weren't truly repentant. Sounds a lot like Pharaoh, doesn't it? Right? The plagues are coming down. All these things are befalling them. Okay, 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 okay. Just, I repent. I repent. Tell God to stop. Okay, fine. We'll tell God to stop. And as soon as God would make it stop, Pharaoh's heart's hardened that much more, and he comes after him that much harder again. Another plague. Okay, okay, okay. Tell God to make it stop. I'm repentant. But it's not real. It's not real repentance. Just like the people of earth here. They're afraid. So they give glory to God, but it's not real. It's not real yet. And that is the end of their ministry. That is the end of their testimony. These two men, these two olive trees, these two candlesticks that are sent to earth to finish that testimony. 
If you remember what Jesus said, that Elijah would return to restore all things. It's because right after his testimony, Jesus Christ comes back to planet Earth. And that's what's taking place. So to wrap this up, just as these witnesses have an anointing, so do we. Time is it. All right, let's go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians 1. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. This is our anointing, the anointing that we have of God. Second Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Now He which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. God has anointed us, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. We have that same anointing. Go ahead and look over to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2. First John 2, 26 and 27. <clears throat> These things I have written unto you concerning them that seduce you, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. This anointing doesn't go away. It abideth daily, all day long in you. And ye need not that any man teach you but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is no lie, even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in Him. You have an anointing of God. And then you've been sealed with His Spirit to have that same power to see people grafted into the olive tree. It's what we're called to do too. We have that anointing. And we're also to be lights in this dark world world. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 verse 14. Matthew 5 14. It's kind of like that, that candlestick. You get the light up high so people can see it. Matthew 5 14. And Jesus went forth five. I'm in chapter 14. That's not going to help us out. Matthew 5, 14. There we go. Ye are the light of the world. We know that Jesus is the light. He's that true light. But Jesus then tells us, ye, you, y'all, are the light of the world. Right? Ye is plural. He's not just talking to the people right in front of him. He's talking to us. Ye are the light of the world now because he's ascended to the Father. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Put that light up. Don't hide it. Don't put it down. We're those candlesticks. We're the light of the world. We've got to do something about it. We've got to stop hiding it. We've got to stop hiding it. Notice he says, let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. 
Because you can't make the light. You can't make it shine. It's His light. So we got to stop covering it up. we got to just let it shine. Basically, we got to learn how to just get out of the way. We can get so focused on what we got to do that we forget we got to let Him work. Not jump in and try and figure it all out and do everything ourselves. And we get really nervous and we get, we get scared and it's like, oh, well, I got to do this. I got to do this. No, we got to let God work in us. That's why we're getting scared. That's why we're afraid. Because we're not letting it happen. We're trying to make it happen. And Jesus said, just let it be. You're the light of the world. Let the light shine. So we're to be lights in this dark world. So the question for us is, are we seeking the salvation of those that we know and bringing them into the family of God? Are we inviting people to church to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Sometimes, if you can't, if you can't let it shine and you're scared, just inviting people to come because you know they'll hear it at church. And you could be, that's how I got saved. The guy that brought me to this church, he didn't really witness to me and give me the gospel, but he invited me to First Baptist Church of Jackson where I heard the gospel and I got saved. So what's the end result? God is glorified. Whether he had led me to Christ outside of this church or whether Pastor Tom led me to Christ in this church, God is glorified. So what are we doing? Are we bringing people into the family of God one way or another? And if we're not, we've got to ask ourselves why. Why aren't we? We have an anointing and we're the light and we just got to let it shine. So why aren't we doing it? Me included. And think about this. Think about this when you leave. What is stopping me from opening my mouth? What is stopping me from looking actively for opportunities? What is stopping me? And when you finally narrow it down, and don't, don't just think about it for five minutes and go, well, you know, I guess I really just don't know and that's the end of the thought. If you really can't pinpoint it, ask God. Beg God. Why? What is going on inside me? What won't I let go of? Why won't I do this? You saved me because someone told me. Why won't I do that for someone else? What is hindering me? I've been asking myself that a lot lately. What's hindering me? And for me, it's excuses. A lot of times it's excuses because I'm busy. I don't have time. And that's bogus. It's totally bogus. So this was Paul's attitude. It's the final sentence here. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity, it is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Do we see it that way? Woe is unto me if I don't preach the gospel, if I don't give people the good news. Woe unto me. That damnation, as we talked about, not eternal, but a, almost a curse. That We can't lose our salvation, but we certainly can break our fellowship, right? And we looked at, I don't know, maybe it was a month or so ago, two months ago. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's what? Sin. Sin. 
So what's the difference between that sin or a willful sin? Still sin, right? Still wrong. Christ still had to die for it. Paul said, woe unto me if I don't do this. So when we're not doing it, we're sinning. When we know we have opportunity and we don't take it, we are sinning. We've got to stop taking it so lightly and do what Christ has called us to do. Just let it shine. Let it shine. Father, thank You again for these two witnesses, for their faithfulness, for Your faithfulness to tell us about them, to tell us about their testimony and what they'll be doing. Lord, please, please take this. Let it motivate us to be like these two that aren't afraid to stand in a crowd and tell people the good news. Because greater is He that's in us than he that is in the world. Father, as Paul put it, all the things in our life, everything that he had, everything that made him successful in the world's eyes and in his religion's eyes, everything he had, he said, I count it dung that I may win Christ. He said, I'm done with my earthly pursuits and trying to, to get the earthly things to win those things. I want to win Christ. Father, we need to win Christ so that we can see people come to Him. We need to apprehend that thing for which we've been apprehended. And we can't do it without You. We cannot do it alone and we cannot do it in our strength. Father, please, we beg of You, pour out that boldness upon us. That bravery that says, though I'm afraid, here am I, Lord. Send me. Father, change us. Make us a people that know You more intimately every single day. That changes us. Conforms us into that image of Your dear Son, Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.